everyone. This is Cynthia Barnes back with another episode of Unstoppable. And I cannot hold my excitement for today's guest. Dory Clark is in the house. Hey, Cynthia. How are you? I'm rocking and rolling. I'm so glad to be here with you. Yes. Let me tell you about Dory Clark. She is a Duke and Columbia business professor, ranked number one communication coach, a Harvard Business Review author, and the top business thinker, top 50 business thinker in the world. Not only that, but the New York Times was kind enough to call her an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. And Dory, you may not remember this, but we met back in Detroit, Michigan, when you were promoting your book, Reinventing You. It was at a National Association of Women Business Owners event, and I got a copy of your book because I was at one of those crossroads where I said, what am I going to be when I grow up? And your book changed my life because I went from being an individual contributor slash sales manager to now an entrepreneur and sales influencer. So thank you. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Cynthia. You have a resume that is as long as my arm. Of all the things that you've accomplished, what are you most proud of? I am probably most proud of writing my books because that is something that I always wanted to do from the time that I was a kid. I loved reading and the idea of writing my own book or my own books was something that was just fun and meaningful. So it was really neat to have the opportunity to get to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. If I can be a testament to that, you've, you've changed lives. You have changed lives. So when you were writing Reinventing You, what's the number one thing that you learned that surprised you? In writing Reinventing You, this is <laughs> probably not the answer you were looking for, but but the, what most surprised me in writing Reinventing You, which was my first book, I realized, I think this was a good lesson to me about persistence and also just the fact that we don't, we often don't really understand the way that things work. Like we need to research them more or something, but I, Reinventing You was the book that I wrote when I had previously written three different book proposals, all of which had been turned down because I wasn't famous enough. And it was really depressing and demoralizing. And so I had to go back to the drawing board and start blogging and start building my platform in order to be able to accomplish what I really wanted, which was to, to write the book. And so it, it turned into a kind of long and elaborate course for me of how to do that. It was about a four and a half year journey between really getting serious about wanting to write a book and actually having a book come out. So probably the biggest surprise for me was, was just the fact that in writing a book, there are so many things that you need to do before you're even allowed to write a book. That's interesting you say that because the author of the book, Content Inc., says that most entrepreneurs go about building a business the wrong way. He says that you should build an audience before you build a business. And what you're saying is that you kind of had to do the same thing by bolstering your credibility by writing the blog, and then you were able to go to the next phase. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. Is that Joe Polizzi? Is that yes, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's he's not wrong. <laughs> it it's kind of it's kind of amazing and counterintuitive. I I realized in retrospect that that a lot of the sort of standard ways that I thought about business or marketing or you know marketing myself uh, were wrong, and I had to learn over the years through trial and error. So I, I think it is so important, Cynthia, to have sh- you know shows like yours where you're giving people a fast track of information so that they don't have to make the same mistakes. But it's exactly right. If you have built an audience and you have assembled them together and they are eager to hear from you and they like what you're doing and you are creating things that that they know are going to be relevant to them, it's extraordinarily powerful because the moment you decide to write a book, you already have the audience in place that says, yes, I want that. I'll buy that. Um, so it's it's really half the battle. But I think a lot of us, myself included, kind of do try to do it backwards or jump the gun by having this idea about a book and then it, and then it becomes like well who would read it uh right. so i've i've definitely learned a lot about the process over the past decade yeah it's been an amazing it's an amazing journey for for those of us that have to actually say okay now where do i want to be and then how do i reverse engineer that and we just don't take the time. But sometimes the universe says you will take the time because your plan is not going to work. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes. Another great book, my my good friend, uh, Ron Friedman, just came out with a new book about how to reverse engineer success and uh, wow. has a very uh, similar view of it. So I, I think okay. that's spot on. Yeah, I, I'll have to pick that up. I'm guessing that you are a voracious reader as a writer. I do read a lot. It's true. What are you currently reading? So I just finished last night a book called How to Change by Katie Milkman, which is a great name. Yeah. Uh, she is a University of Pennsylvania professor, and uh, it's kind of about behavioral economics and the ways that you can incentivize change. And I'm listening right also now. I have kind of different modalities. So I'm listening to an audiobook, which is an older audiobook. And it is called How to Be a Billionaire, Proven Strategies from the Titans of Wealth by Martin Fridson. And it's interesting because it's like about 20 plus years old. It's from the late 90s. But it's this very in-depth series of profiles about people who were kind of the titans of industry 20 years ago. So it's not it's not Jeff Bezos, it's not Elon Musk like we hear about today. They hadn't kind of broken through yet. It's actually about people like Sam Walton and, you know, old-timey people like uh like John Rockefeller or or things like that. And so, you know, it Wayne Heizenga who mm. was the waste management and then uh blockbuster impresario. So it's very, it's very interesting to hear their stories and their sort of tactics and techniques that they used. I'm going to have to pick that up too. Yeah. We all have adversity on our way to where we are now. When you think back in either your personal or your professional life, what was the one adversity that you overcame that you're most proud of, but that threatened to derail your success? Well, there's certainly a lot of different ways that one could answer this, but probably the most acute that I can point to, you know, sort of the the most uh, emotionally searing and acute was right around the same time that my first book came out, you know, just a little bit before. Um, In 2013, I ended uh, a relationship, a kind of serious relationship that I had had. 
And it was extremely hard and extremely painful. This was someone that I, I really was in love with and I knew that I needed to end it because it was it, w- it was not going to be the kind of relationship that would support me over time in the professional goals that I needed. She seemed really threatened, I think, by a lot of things that one would hope a partner wouldn't be threatened by, like my work and my career and my relationship with my mom and, you know, all these uh, things where, you know, I I think she sort of wanted to be the center of literally everything. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it is important to put your partner at the center of things, but maybe not so exclusively. And it began to come to a head because when my first book came out, that was a bit of an inflection point where all of a sudden there's a lot more opportunities. There's a lot more speaking. There's a lot more travel. There's a lot more uh, possibilities and attention. And I knew that if I had somebody that was blocking that or was hostile to that, it would mean that I could never really achieve the level of success that I hoped for. And, uh, you know, that wasn't, it wasn't the only challenge, but it was, it was one of them. And I just, I knew, even though it was extraordinarily difficult, I knew it was not the right relationship. I knew that she was not the right person. And so, uh, I ended that at the beginning of that year and she just kind of made it her mission in life to make things as, difficult and onerous and painful in that extrication process as possible. Uh, so enduring that was really difficult. And also having the the sort of perseverance to stay with it because I knew it was the right decision, but I also felt bad about it and I felt conflicted yeah. about it. So I think muscling through that is probably the adversity that I am proudest of because it was something that, that frankly that I didn't want to do but I knew that I needed to do. You don't know how amazing that story is. I just got out of a relationship with someone who said, "I have a problem with your success, Cynthia. I would much rather you be a cashier at Walmart." Whoa. Yeah. And well, I'd all- much rather you be successful, Cynthia. You go, yes, girl. Yes, yes. So for you to tell me that story, and I know that there are other women out here listening, you have the strength to say, I love you and I love me. And I'm going to go after my dreams and love you where you are, wherever you choose to be. That That gives me strength. You just don't know. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, I'm so I'm so glad to hear it. And, you know, I, it sounds like a really challenging situation for you, but, you know, props to you for, for also being able to get through that. That is not easy. Thank you. I think that when we know our capabilities for impacting the world for this generation and the next generation, and we, we keep focused on that, it's easier to make the decisions to put ourselves in the right place. And those who love us and want to support us will come along or they will find ways to leave. Yeah, absolutely. Who were the most influential people in your life growing up? 
Oh boy. Well, you know, for sure. My mom, <laughs> she was, uh, uh, my mom, uh, was, and is just, you know, the, the, the best cheerleader and so encouraging and so, uh, supportive, which I, I really appreciate. I know not everybody has that. And, um, also our, our family had a really wonderful housekeeper named Anne who, uh, helped raise me, which was handy. Cause my dad, like super did not. <laughs> so it was good to have, you know, some extra reinforcements. But yeah, I mean, they they were both uh, really wonderful and, uh, you know, great source of, of support. But yeah, when I, you know, we, we always have these like, you know, sort of scripts in our head and things that we repeat. And, you know, I'm I'm always proud when I think about my mom and sort of how she always was with me because you know now I try to re- repeat that with my uh, with my kids who are cats and so <laughs> every every day you know I'm always I'm always just telling them like you were the most handsome cats and you know I love I love your furry you know your furry ears and you know I just you're perfect just the way you are yes. you know and I I, I want to have cats with good self esteem and so I try to I try to pass it on. I love it. I love it. So when your mom is meeting with her friends and they they may or may not have those liquid libations, what do you think she says about you? That she's those proud moments where her chest is stuck out. What do you think she says? <laughs> oh, well, uh, thank you. My, my mom, I mean, I know that she, she ropes in all her friends. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I think about three weeks ago, I had a showcase because one of the things that I do in addition to my, you know, business work is that over the past five years, I have really made an effort to try to train myself as a musical theater writer. And so about three weeks ago, I had this uh, showcase. It was kind of a capstone situation where we were presenting, my, my composing partner and I were presenting a four song 20 minute demo of songs from our now completed musical. And, you know, it was, uh, it was this sort of special evening where this was being shown. And my mom literally, you know, I mean, her and her, her friends, they're all in their eighties. So technology is not really the strong suit there, but she, she literally, I mean, it's adorable. She got her two best friends and they came over to her house and she got them all set up so that like, one was on an iPad and another one was like on her phone. I don't know why they, they didn't like all watch it together, but she, she got them set up so that they all three of them were separately logged into zoom and like at her, at her house, mind you, like in the same room, but they were all on their devices watching my performance. So she's, she's definitely a a, a booster. <laughs> definitely. I love that. And she's in her eighties. Yeah. And she's doing all that technology and Wi-Fi and all that good stuff, organizing just Zoom conferences. She she is. I mean, like if I have a Zoom call with her, I mean, to be fair, half her head is cut off, but she does it. She makes it happen. That's amazing. As a writer, who are those writers that you look up to? So the writers that that I look up to, I mean, certainly in a in a business context. I love um, Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis. I mean, they're they're just they're the people who really understand how to do business topics and storytelling, and they do it so wonderfully. I mean, literally, I 
I study, I try to reverse engineer what they're doing so that I can learn from it because I, I think it's it's so well done and so compelling. My friend Ron Friedman, who I mentioned, he's also a really lovely writer and his book, uh, Decoding Greatness, is really well done and a, and a terrific read. Um, how about you, Cynthia? What are what are the, the writers that you like best? Um, geez. I like, I think, James Clear that wrote uh, Atomic Habits. Yeah, yeah. That one moved me. Um, Angela Duckworth, Grit. Um, of course, you. I like Michelle Obama's book. I think mm. it, it's um, transparent and heartfelt. Yeah, those 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 are good authors. If you could have dinner with anyone, I know this is a cliche, but I want to know who you'd want to have dinner with. Yes, so so many so many good interesting people. Um, someone I actually have tried to invite. You know, in, pre-COVID, I would have a lot of dinner parties in New York. And someone I actually tried to invite to dinner, but who has not come to any of my dinners, is uh, Jennifer Finney Boylan, who's a op-ed writer for the New York Times. Uh, she is a professor. I think she teaches at Columbia now, although she either split her time or whatever at one of one of the schools in Maine that I always get confused. It's either Bates or Bowdoin or Colby, which are kind of interchangeable to me. Sorry, people who attended those colleges. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's one one of them. She she was a professor at for a long time. But she's she's really a very interesting, thoughtful, humane person. She's transgender and has written some really interesting memoirs about her experience. And she's she's kind of like a thoughtful, rational voice. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, we'll have to put that out there in the universe so that the universe can conspire to touch her heart to reach out to you and say, hey, Dory, when is your next dinner party? I'd like to come. That's right. That's right. Yes. Thank you. Yes. yes. So what are you working on now? Because I know you've got some things in the in the, the oven. I do. I do. The big project for me right now is I have a new book that is coming out uh, September 21st, nice. and uh, it is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And I have uh, spent the past you know, couple of years really diving into this question about how do you apply strategic thinking in our lives and in our careers. Mm -hmm. that's, that's amazing. I can't wait to read it. They say that over in other cultures they plan or they think about what is it that I'm about to do and how does it affect seven generations down the road versus us over here, we think about what I'm about to do is going to affect the next 30 minutes. So that that's interesting that you are diving into that topic and unpacking it. Um, it's going to be a good read. Let me know how I can help promote it to my followers. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm always... Set telling our members and my followers that sales is nothing more than influencing decision makers to say yes. And as someone who's had a huge success in both professional um, circles and academia, how do you continue to influence those decision makers to say yes? Because not everybody's going to say yes to you. Yeah, it's it's true. I think Part of it, um, which <laughs> you know, is in, in in some in some ways anathema to the the sales leader mentality, is I always try to remind myself it's actually good if certain people say no to you. I mean, mm. the, the 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 key piece that we have to keep in mind is we want the right people to say yes, not mm. everybody, 
if you have people who, you know, if we're thinking in the sales context, if you have people who are going to be pain in the ass customers, yeah. if you have people that are going to be angry or problematic, or they're, they're never going to be satisfied or every little thing is, is going to be an issue or they keep, you know, trying to, you know, tick you down on prices or, or, you know, whatever it is, the sale is not the end of the story. The relationship is the story. And so you want the right people to say yes to you, but actually it's a good thing if the wrong people say no, um, because they are worth, you know, they, they cause far more trouble than they're worth. And so I just try to always shift my mindset that it's about bring, bringing the right people to you and actually actively trying to repel yes. <laughs> the, wrong, the wrong people. Yes, you do want to repel the wrong people. They used to say that for those people who were the pain in the ass, you want to add a PIA tax, a pain in the ass tax, so that it makes it worth having to work with them. But I like what you said better. You know, not all clients or not all business is good business. Not all money is good money. And you save yourself a lot of aggravation and grief on the back end. If you have the mindset of, I want to work with people and develop relationships with people I want to. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, for all of us, you know, I mean, the, the reward that we get, you know, for our success. I mean, when we think about like, how do we take our rewards? How do we claim our rewards? For me, the first reward that we should all be claiming is once we have gotten to the level of financial success where we're no longer, um, you know, actively worried about money, actively worried about the next sale, where we have margin, the first reward that we should take, you know, it's not like getting a bigger house and it's not like getting a nicer car. It's the reward of being able to say no to people that make our lives miserable. Yes. Yes. And that is a great place to be when you can selectively choose your business partners. Yeah, I think we need to be as selective with our business partners as we are with our personal relationships. And sometimes we don't do that because of whatever reason. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you had all the time and money and resources available to you, just an Amex ready to go. What, and you may already, but what would you do for a day? 24 hours, no business. What would you do? Or you may do business. When I think about things that I want to spend time doing, I mean, so it, I, I like the frame of, of your question because 24 hours, that's, that's enough where, you know, for, for a lot of people, you know, there's kind of this like, oh, you know, I'll have a beach, you know, beach vacation lifestyle. But, you know, we all know that like, if literally all you're doing is sitting on the beach, that gets old really fast. Like that, that actually is very entertaining for like a day or possibly a week. But if you get out beyond that, it's like, uh, what, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, what's the point here? So you need projects. If we're thinking like a longer term thing, I would say the biggest thing that I wish that I could spend time on right at the moment, but instead all of my spare time is spent book marketing, (laughs) you know, preparing for the September book launch. But the thing that I would probably be investing time in that's a more strategic pursuit is my, like another musical. So I wrote, Mm. I've completed a musical called Absolute Zero, which is a lesbian spy thriller. And uh, yeah, thank you. And so I have another one that is about genetic testing and family relationships called 23 and You and You and Me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love it. Glad you like the title. Awesome. Yeah, I do. I do. So I want to I want to be spending time working on that as kind of a project. So I think if I have a little chunk of longer time, I would do that. If I literally just had 24 hours, then yeah, I would probably do something, you know, a little bit more on the sort of fun and hedonistic side. So it has been a while because of COVID uh, since I've done like a like an afternoon tea at like a fancy hotel. So I'd probably do something like that. I'd take, mm. I'd take my mom. <laughs> Yeah, you got to take mom. I don't know what yeah. her name is, but uh, yeah, she she needs to go. Yeah, she needs absolutely. To go. Yes, and she'll probably zoom with her friends and say, "Guess where I am?" <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. So, being who you are, being Dory Clark, I'm sure is not easy. Every single day, I'm sure there are challenges. I'm sure there are days when you just want to lie in bed with your four legged coworkers and let the day go by. What motivates you to get back at it? Well, I think there's probably two things. I mean, one is that I I guess uh, I am blessed, you could say, with a very high degree of responsibility. If I feel like there is a thing I need to do, I'm actually pretty good at, for, you know, delayed gratification and just like forcing myself to do that thing. So that that can be helpful because... I am sort of preternaturally willing to put duty first and like, you know, okay, I guess I need to do the thing and I will do the thing. Uh, so, so part of it is just putting one foot in front of the other with obnoxious things that you have to do, like that nobody likes, like sending invoices or like yeah. you know, ridiculous stuff like that. And then, you know, part of it is sort of a, I guess, a bigger sense of mission. You know, there's just, there's just sort of a, uh, a need to make a, make a bigger impact. And so I think that I would feel like I had let myself down if I did not make an effort to try to actualize that. Okay. When you talk about making an impact and you think back over the, the things that you've accomplished, what are you most proud of? Well, one thing that is really neat you know, for the past five years, I've been running this online course and community called Recognized Expert, which is for, you know, just smart, interesting professionals that want to try to grow their platform and get their ideas better known. And just watching the success of all the people who have been through the program is really very motivating to me. And so I um, recently started to essentially set aside a, a bookshelf in my condo for like just the books of people who who have been my coaching clients or who have been through the program. And I mean, it's, it is not insubstantial. There's like, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, not that a book is the only measure, although it is a, it's the kind that you can have on a shelf. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to see the things that people have done, you know, they, they've, they've written books, they've written for major publications, they've given TEDx talks, they've given talks at Google, they have been on morning talk shows, they've been on you know, some of America's top podcasts, like it's, it's very cool and very exciting to watch that success. That's amazing. It, that's changing lives, changing lives. And I think that we're all in a position to change lives, no matter our pedigree, the, the accolades. I think there's no one too small, just like that gnat in the tent. They say, you know, a gnat can, is insignificant until he's locked in a tent with you. And then you realize, that gnat is significant. So we're just the same. Nobody is too small. Nobody is too small. If you had one piece of advice 
that you could instill upon those that love and respect you, what would it be? In terms of advice, one of the sayings that I really like and I I turn to is by Theodore Roosevelt. And it goes like this, that in any moment of uncertainty, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing you can do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. (laughs) So I, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, is sort of the classic like bias for action guy. And, you know, I, I believe in planning and I believe in research and I believe in forethought, but at a certain point, you're just, you're never going to have complete information. And certainly in this world, you're just not. And so we can't afford to be paralyzed. The only way ultimately we're going to get data is by doing something. And there's ways to be smarter about it. You know, there's ways, you know, and I talk about this in the long game, you can apply the lean startup methodology and do the, you know, the minimum viable product and, you know, all, all of these things to avoid getting too far out over your skis so that you're not ruining yourself if, if something doesn't work. But I think that there's real value in trying something. I think there's real value in experimenting and actually being willing to say, all right, let's, let's give it a go. Uh, I am always much more proud of people who try something, even if it doesn't work rather than people who just stand back and don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, they used to tell me Cynthia, nothing beats a failure, but a try. So even if you fall on your face, you know, just, just get, get back up. You know, as Les Brown says, if you're going to fall down, fall on your back. Cause if you can look up, you can get up. <laughs> Love Les <Amen>. Brown. <laughs> Love Les Brown. Yes. When we talk about being unstoppable, what makes you Dory Clark unstoppable? Oh, I think when it comes to persistence or, you know, over overcoming rejection, overcoming adversity, things like that, I am willing to be very persistent and I think keep going longer than many other people. And part of the reason for that is that I am really adamant that I refuse to accept other people's judgment of me as definitive. I think a problem that people run into is that they assume somehow that that other people know better than they do. Oh, the editor said no, therefore... It must be terrible. I must be terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's just not true. You know, I have a client who had been writing for a high-profile publication for about six months for free. And she'd been, you know, just doing this like twice a week, like working really, really hard. And at a certain point, you know, and who knows what the internal dynamics were. I mean, maybe you know, all of a sudden the senior people are like, oh, we have too many contributors. We got to get rid of them or, you know, who knows. But her editor actually, you know, sort of fired her, quote unquote, from doing this free thing. And, you know, on, on the way out the door, the editor's like, yeah, well, we, you know, we need you to, to, you know, to not write for us anymore. We don't think your articles are creative enough. And the woman's like, what? Like I've been writing, you know, for six months for you for free. I've, you know, I mean, I've been getting like thousands of views, you know, for your publication, not from my website, but for your publication. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this woman felt entitled to kind of kick her on the way out the door. 
Meanwhile, this woman, the editor, is like 23 years old. Like, no offense to the brilliant 23-year-olds out there. I know there are plenty. But, like, in the aggregate, you know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, to, to, have, to have someone who really does not have a lot of experience at their job mm-hmm. and, you know, odds are, statistically, doesn't necessarily have the longitudinal data to know yeah. in the business canon what is creative, what is not creative, for her to feel entitled to not just fire my client, but to insult her yeah. uh, on the way out the door is just offensive. It is. And so, you know, I obviously, my client was very upset, but, you know, I, I talked with her, I had her reach out to a bunch of other people and, you know, she realized that the most important thing she could do was get back on the horse. And literally within a couple of months, she had managed to land at another high profile and equally good high profile publication, which she continues to write for to this day. And they are fine with her writing. They like her writing, you know? And, and so if she had been willing to say, oh yeah, I guess this 23 year old knows more than I do. I must suck. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, she would have stopped and it would have prevented her from being able to really share her gift with the world, which I think would have been really unfortunate. I'm glad she had you to help her realize that because too often we take advice or the the words of someone else as gospel and we don't challenge it. We just say, you know what, they must be right. And I'm glad that you got her to see that she should consider the source, right? Sometimes we don't consider the source of who's giving us this advice or who's imparting this wisdom. You've got to consider the source. And I'm glad that she moved on. Yeah. I'm glad that she moved on. Yeah. To, to go where she's celebrated, not just where she's tolerated. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So I, I, I wish that we could talk forever. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed your wisdom and your energy. I know that our listeners are going to want to, to be in your space. Where can they find you? Thank you, Cynthia. Well, one, one of the most exciting things, as I mentioned, is I have this new book coming out, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And so for anybody who's interested in those questions of strategic thinking and how do you apply strategic thinking to your career, I actually have a, a free self-assessment that folks can download, uh, The Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. And uh, folks can get it at doryclark.com. That's D-O-R-I-E, clark.com slash the long game. So that's that's the magic ticket, doryclark.com slash the long game. And you can get the free self-assessment. That's awesome. That, that, I can't wait to get that because I can always use some extra strategy. There's not enough, not enough. Dory, thank you so much for your time, for for giving us um, some of your time today. I am truly grateful, and this has been a great time spent with you. Thank you so much. For those of you who want to get in touch with Dory, don't forget to follow her on LinkedIn. She's got a wonderful newsletter um, that I read all the time. And uh, pick up her books. You will not be disappointed. And don't forget to subscribe so that you can get her new downloadable. Yes. Dory, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you, Cynthia. Great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you.